This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, August 31st, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. When Facebook muted content related to what was contained on Hunter Biden's laptop, it was in response to an FBI suggestion about election misinformation. For social media companies that take their cues from government nudges, the stakes are high for profitability, for credibility, and for avoiding future jawboning from members of Congress. Cato's Will Duffield has a forthcoming paper on the subject. We spoke Monday. On numerous occasions on this podcast, you have mentioned the term jawboning. Uh, for the benefit of listeners, remind us of what jawboning is in the context of uh, you know business or specifically social media. Jawboning is informal th- speech, often threats, demands by a government official intended to prompt private action. And the goal, request, or demand is usually something the government can't do itself. All right. So in the context of social media, what have we, where have we seen that? Well, there have been a lot of demands for platforms to remove unwanted content. And under the First Amendment, this isn't speech that the government can censor or suppress. But by threatening private platforms, they can often compel them to essentially do their unconstitutional dirty work for them. So there was this uh, viral tweet that went out that sort of was Mark Zuckerberg talking to Joe Rogan and saying that they had uh, removed, uh, suppressed or otherwise deprioritized content uh, associated with the Hunter Biden laptop story prior to the election of 2020 based on a general uh, election misinformation warning that had been issued by the FBI. So can you characterize or uh, provide some context for that? Yeah. So I think the context really goes all the way back to the 2016 election and concerns about Russian misinformation there. But this Mines tweet and the Joe Rogan clip that it contained was presented as a breaking news story. However, back in 2020, only weeks after platforms actioned the New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop, both Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey were called in to testify uh, both about how they treated the New York Post story and other election-related content moderation concerns. There, they discussed receiving warnings from the FBI about a hack and leak operation and Zuckerberg in particular was was even more specific than he was on Joe Rogan, saying that the FBI had suggested we'd be on high alert and sensitivity if a trove of documents appeared, that we should view that with suspicion that it might be part of a foreign manipulation attempt. So the discussion on Joe Rogan wasn't new, but I think it should prompt some, some concern, though perhaps less about the FBI and more with the way Facebook and other platforms were treated after the 2016 election. This was sort of presented, this uh, tweet that went viral was sort of presented as new information, and it really wasn't. Indeed, but the the setup for it, I think, uh, occurred out in public over a long period of time. Um, The FBI sent this warning, and it isn't what we would traditionally think of as jawboning. It wasn't accompanied by a threat or a demand. 
It was simply a be on the lookout. However, since the 2016 election, both the media and more importantly, elected officials have browbeaten Facebook and other platforms, castigating them for not doing enough to prevent Russian disinformation from being spread on their platforms. So this, this treatment and, and demands that they do more over the three years prior to the, the New York Post story and the 2020 election essentially pre-punished these platforms for any, any failure to, uh, to promptly remove Russian misinformation. So then when this New York Post story came out in the wake of this FBI warning, platforms found themselves in a very difficult position. They were sort of damned if they did and damned if they didn't. On, on the one hand, if they failed to remove the story and it turned out to be Russian misinformation, a, a planted story or documents on the laptop, then they would again have failed to prevent uh, the Russians from taking advantage of their networks to interfere in U.S. elections. But if they removed an, an anodyne or, or innocent story, well, they'd be dragged in front of Congress and, and treated as agents of the state as they have been. Um, so I think it was really a, a no-win situation, but it took the, the browbeating, uh, jawboning, and, and other demands between 2016 and 2020 to get there and, and to really set up this FBI warning um, to be complied with. So to the extent that politics eats everything, uh, certainly social media has uh, been front and center in terms of a lot of political fights. And you've offered you and John Samples have offered advice to uh, social media platforms that, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, boils down to essentially uh, maybe don't be so quick to restrict content that we might not have a really good idea about its truth at this point. Yeah, I, I think that's that's largely correct. Um, you know, in in this case, Twitter created a, a hacked materials policy after the 2016 election. They first implemented it in 2018. And the first time it was used, there was very little reaction. Twitter removed a trove of leaked police files called Blue Leaks. And well, there was some mild complaining on the left. It didn't prompt much of a much pushback. So from their perspective, it seemed as though they they created a kind of appropriate remedy to concerns about hacked materials influencing politics, and and no one was that worried. But then, when you come to this this much more important, perhaps much more politically salient, uh, New York Post story, uh, their their action has really created a kind of lost cause narrative, and. I'm very skeptical that their both Twitter's initial, I believe, two or maybe five day ban on, on sharing the story and Facebook's initial algorithmic suppression, in a sense, they threw it into a fact checking queue, but it was a story that couldn't immediately be fact checked. So the effect of this was just to, to suppress it a bit, but still allow it to be shared and viewed on other people's profiles. Um, but in in leaping um, 
to that measure on both fronts, you create the the uh, appearance of corruption or interference in the election, regardless of what what impact um, these moderation actions um, suppressing this story actually had. You know, looking at the Google Trends information uh, about the story, it interest in it in searches for Hunter Biden's laptop or New York Post Hunter Biden story peaked really a, a, almost a week after uh, the first story was run. And all of these moderation actions occurred on the first day very quickly. And so if they really uh, crushed the story, prevented people from finding it, then we probably wouldn't see this you know, sort of continued growing interest in it over the course of the next week. Um, and maybe there is even a sort of Streisand effect there, where uh, concerns about platform suppression of it prompted people to look into the story when otherwise they, they wouldn't have. But because they removed it, or, or at least suppressed it initially, and because they had been pressured by the government to take these sorts of steps in the past, then regardless of what actually prompted their removal or what effect it had, it looks like congressmen browbeating a social media platform into interfering in an election. And that, that's very concerning from a, a speech standpoint, uh, from an electoral integrity and fairness standpoint. And it really undermines trust in these platforms and our system of government. Uh, so I think we need to be very, very careful um, both about or that politicians need to be more careful about how they speak and what they demand of private platforms and that platforms take more care about how their actions can be viewed and cast, particularly over a longer period of time. What would a hacked materials policy, uh, if that were a policy that social media platforms had adopted much earlier, what would that have looked like in the case of the New York Times, for example, or other major media outlets reporting on information that had been secured by Ed Snowden? Exactly. And I, I think with, with this power, even when we may agree in an instance with how it's used, what it's aimed at, over time, and, and especially casting it back to those stories that now we view as important in shaping our, our civic space, our understanding of, of government action, um, had we had more of a norm of, of jawboning and, and of the suppression of you know, unpleasant information about the government, we might not have that shared touchstone and and everything that it revealed to us. Uh, so in many cases, the, the harm of this when it's been successful um, is, is really invisible. It, it seems like a lot of the uh, reactions to specific events done by social media companies typically results in some sort of rule that seems broad and facially neutral in an attempt to deal with future instances, but almost every one of these instances that I can recall, at least in recent memory, all had some different little wrinkle to them that renders some specific policy about it, well, not as effective, not as useful, uh, could cause a backlash, 
uh, a Streisand effect, as you pointed to. It just seems like any time that, that social media companies really try to create a rule about something, it fails. Well, I don't know if they always fail, but I think they can cludge up over time in a way that makes it very difficult to run a platform over years or, or decades. Because when you respond to each new incident with a rule and each failure of the old rule with an updated rule, your rule set grows and grows and begins to cover situations which you never intended and then end up prompting another rule or modification of it. And it, it simply becomes too complicated a, a morass of rules to enforce effectively or in a fair way. And so over time, this kludge of, of rules and differing enforcement decisions allows everyone, regardless of their bent or political orientation, to point to some decision or rule and say, this discriminates against me, the platform is biased, it's horribly run, and over time this reduces trust, it, it becomes an issue, and it just makes it hard for these platforms to be run effectively and purposefully. So uh, you have a forthcoming paper on essentially this this exact topic. Yes, what, what, the paper what, is, what will we find there? The paper is titled Jawboning Against Speech, How Government Bullying Shapes the Rules of Social Media, and it will be available on Monday, September 12th. In it, I examine how this trend of, of jawboning has grown over the past four or five years, and I suggest that it's a path-dependent response to the First Amendment and the ubiquity of speech online. Will Duffield is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Please give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>